Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. But what of the man? I know his name was Guy Fawkes, and I know in 1605 he attempted to blow up the Houses of Parliament. But who was he really? What was he like? Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're covering films that rage against the machine. And today we're talking about the film that probably is the most perfect fit for that definition, 2006's V for Vendetta. I'm your host, a man who would turn in my co-host in a second if my oppressors offered me an ice cream cone. My co-host is Guy, who has a secret room in his house and we never talk about what happens in there. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today is Taylor Elin, newly minted lawyer. Hello, Taylor. Hello, how are you? Hello. Okay, so Taylor, you had a choice of films on our list. What made you choose this one? Sure. So you gave me a list of films and I was going through them. And admittedly, I'm not a film guy, so I don't know a ton of movies. But when I saw V for Vendetta, it's actually one of my favorites of all time. Um, it's one of those movies where like, well, I, when I first watched it, I was a hardcore libertarian in high school. So I thought Guy Fox was like the superhero. And <laughs> it's what, so it's a movie that I do come back to. And every time I come back to it, it's, it's a good benchmark for how I feel about the machine generally. I um, mean, mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how it's changed over time, but it's just one of my favorites. So I saw an opportunity to talk about it and I figured you know, worst case, if I had to rush to the movie, I would still know a lot of it anyway. So that was a benefit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I have uh, probably different opinions on, over time on it too, which we can uh, probably delve into detail a, a bit later. So some context for this film, right? It's based on a graphic novel by Alan Moore. And Alan Moore is this brilliant writer. I, I've been reading him since I was a teenager when he was actually very, I was actually buying the comics as they were coming out, that sort of thing. He is a brilliant writer, but he's a very cantankerous person. He decided early on to reject all the filmed versions of his work because he felt they were all crap. And he has a point that most of the movies based on his work are crap. So League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for example. I think it's too bad he didn't see, he refused to see them and he refuses to accept royalties for them. He won't be paid for them. Huh. I think it's too bad he refused to see this one. I think, you know, it's both a good movie and, well, he has some issues. I think it's, you know, pretty true to what he did. But based on the script, he felt that it simplified his intent. So he was focusing on comparing fascism and anarchism. And he felt the movie portrays a more simple criticism of neocons versus liberals. And he thought that that was kind of a, kind of a cop out. I don't really see that government as neocons, though. I think they're more just old fashioned Nazis, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I will say also all the, all that fancy political stuff aside, I mean, the graphic novel is clearly a reaction to Thatcher's England. And which Moore was vehemently opposed to, and particularly because of their anti-gay policies. And I, I always say it's really interesting because in my opinion, Thatcher did a lot of really important things that brought England into the modern era. But both her and Reagan had these huge blind spots, right? You have to decide what you feel about that, but these were people who did some important things and who also 
had some very discriminatory stuff that was very problematic. It's interesting because I, I didn't know the political background of why the movie was made or the book were made. So I didn't know the Reagan Thatcher connection. That does make it a lot more sense. Like I sort of see myself as a political student, but like amateur political student where I don't learn in the class, but I've, you know, keep track of these historical things for my show and stuff that I work on as a somebody interested in societies. And it's one of those things where like, I could definitely see the parallels. I can understand why he thought it was a neocon versus liberal oversimplification because what, what I remember of the, especially the odds of the way the neo, neocons were perceived of people who didn't like them, they were these sort of um, more religiously uh, conservative types of people who, you know, kind of claimed freedom and stuff like that. But I could see how the script gives the idea that this isn't about anarchism versus fascism. That being said, there are definitely elements in the movie that are certainly fascistic and, and it makes more sense to look at it through the lens of these are fascists and not neocons. So I could... I, I can sympathize with the idea that maybe he took his criticism too far because I don't think you, you know, you watch the first 10 minutes of the movie, especially and get the idea that these are um, Bush like Republicans as much as they're yeah. more like, they, they're more like a cross between it's like a religious Hitler because you have mm. aspects of it that are certainly religious that make more sense. Now that I understand the Thatcher and Reagan background of it. And I right. think, uh, right. I think in uh, Nazi Germany that there was a good amount of using the popular religion as a kind of a uh, you know veneer over the Nazi beliefs, which were often very different. But uh, yeah, the actual Nazi ideology was a lot more uh, you know the Nordic uh, Teutonic type stuff to the extent there was any religion in there at all. So now Guy and I are going to walk through the movie in some detail in case you've never seen it or it's been a long time or you want to hear our bad jokes. If you would rather just continue with our conversation with Taylor, there are bookmarks in this episode and you can skip ahead and listen to that. With that, we start out by hearing Natalie Portman recite an old nursery rhyme about the gunpowder plot. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder treason and plot, for I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And we then see uh, the actual Guy Fox wheeling some gunpowder along in the tunnel, and then he's confronted by some guards with dogs. And in desperation, he pulls his sword out and attacks, but uh, he's captured. And we see him being strung up to be hung. And there's a woman in the audience crying for him, and presumably this is the person that Natalie Portman's voice is representing. And then he meets his fate. And we get the credits, and there's this cool flaming V inside a circle, which I realized, looking at it, is basically an upside-down version of the Anarchy logo. Mm -hmm. Because if you turn V upside down, it's basically an A. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So that's convenient. Yeah. And we now see a newscaster on the TV saying that the former United States, and, and all through the movie, every time they talk about the United States, they say the former United States mm. is so desperate for medical supplies that they sent wheat and tobacco in trade. That's a fair trade. Yeah. And uh, in the room with the TV that's saying all this, we see a man from behind and he puts on a white mask, a creepily smiling mask with a mustache painted on. This is the Guy Fox mask. 
And we now transition to Natalie Portman putting on makeup and looking in a mirror. And uh, here's one thing I say. I, I actually, I really like this movie and, and, uh, and I like how it was done. But this scene always really bothered me because one of the challenges you have when you're translating a comic is how faithful you are to it. And this scene where we go back and forth between V putting on his stuff and Natalie Portman putting on her stuff, that is directly from the comic, right? Hmm. So in the comic, you know, one or two frames that show this and then one or two frames that show that and it, and it works. But in the movie, it, it, to me, it was just confusing. Like, you know, it didn't, it didn't work. Um, and I felt like it was a case of them following the comic too closely. And we're going to see Watchmen in the future. And, and I have that same criticism of Watchmen. There are times it just follows the comic too closely. And a comic is n not a movie. Mm, right? yeah. And so you need to think about it differently. So they get dressed at the same time. Well, the man on the TV rails against the U.S. and says the U.S. fell because of godlessness and goes on about Muslims and homosexuals. We're going to meet this guy later. He's sort of the, you know, he's the populist TV host and we're yeah, all he's the, familiar with these days yeah the government mouthpiece yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the masked man finishes dressing by putting on a belt that contains several large dangerous looking knives they're pretty cool looking and then he wraps himself in a black cloak and natalie portman is late for something so she's running outside it's late at night and there's an outside speaker you know this being uh obviously you know the future where we have lots of uh oppression there's all these speakers everywhere and the speaker says we're in a yellow coated curfew it's now in effect any unauthorized personnel will be subject to arrest this is for your protection <laughs> <laughs> i always enjoy being protected yeah so natalie portman is walking in the dark and meanwhile again we keep doing this mirroring thing so we're seeing the masked man walking also in the dark and she sees some suspicious characters, so she ducks into an alley, and she encounters a man who at first seems to be okay, seems to be trying to help her out, but then he starts, like, blocking her way. <laughs> and then another man joins him, and it's clear they want sexual favors from her. Yeah. So she pulls out pepper spray, but they're not very impressed by pepper spray. <laughs> yeah. One of them pulls out a weird badge. It's this kind of, it's kind of like, a, it, it's red. It's kind of like a cross, but it's like there's two crosses. Yeah, there's a, there's a cross piece and another cross piece above it. Yeah. And this is the, the main political party's emblem. Yeah, it's sort of like a religious symbol. And she spooked and says, oh, I didn't know. Because <laughs> yeah, they're apparently officials who, you know. And then a third thug shows up and he holds a metal rod across her neck and they move in to do things to her. Cause even though they're part of the government, apparently they're still not good people, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, conveniently the masked man shows up and he says some lines from Macbeth. The multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him. What the hell? Bugger off! Disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution. Hugo Weaving, you know, played V, and I, I don't know if he did the voice or not, but if he did, it was a pretty amazing well, job. he must have, because you, you never see his face, so if he didn't do the voice, then he, what the hell <laughs> did he? <laughs> yeah. 
Ameni uses his fancy knives to quickly dispatch the bad guys. <laughs> One of them punches him in the face, and it turns out that his mask is metal, so <laughs> that doesn't go well for him. And he tells Natalie Portman that he means her no harm, and they have a conversation. His words are very flowery and learned, and he does an extended monologue based on the letter V. <laughs> lot of lot of alliteration, yeah. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the vox populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. And behind them, there's a sign that says unity through faith. And he finishes his monologue by slashing the V symbol into it. <laughs> he tells her she can call him V, which I guess is convenient since she's just seen him do the V thing. <laughs> she introduces herself as Evie. And I don't know the meaning here, but I was thinking about it. I realized E-V, right? Mm -hmm. There's got to be something about that. The fact that V is part of her name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she's... EV means enhanced V. <laughs> so he says he's a musician and he wants her to see his performance tonight. She wants to go home, but he persuades her. And he takes her to the top of a building and they are looking across at the Old Bailey, which uh, I had to look up. I mean, I've been to London many times, but I wasn't aware of this. So the Old Bailey is a famous London building with a statue of justice at the top. Yeah, now, would that be what the, the show Rumpole of the Bailey is uh, about? Good catch. That is probably the case. Uh, I don't know for sure, but it sure makes sense. Because that was the guy from, uh, that was one of the best number twos from The Prisoner. Yeah, right? yeah. Leo McKern. Yes, yeah, <laughs> not only have we seen him in The Prisoner, but we saw him in The Mouse That Roared <laughs> that we just did. So, yeah, that makes total sense. She's confused about the musician thing because she says she doesn't see any instruments. And he points her, her to that statue and asks her what day it is. And she's like, well, it's November the 4th. But actually, you know, we've gone past midnight. So he says, not anymore. It's now the 5th. And he recites the Remember, Remember, November the 5th poem. And he has a baton and he acts like he's conducting an orchestra. And then the, the speakers that are everywhere start playing music and people come outside curious about this and the building with the statue of justice blows up mm -hmm. and we immediately switch to a huge John Hurt on a screen <laughs> and later we learn he's the high chancellor who runs everything. And I realized then they have to have chosen him for this reason because John Hurt was in 1984 and he played, you know, the, Winston Smith, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and he was the one being subjected to things on a screen. So, yeah. you know, big brother and all that. So I'm sure they felt like this was uh, the perfect uh, casting to yeah. switch places and have him be big brother, basically. Yeah. He's very, um, he doesn't have a toothbrush mustache, but he's, Got kind of a Hitler-esque uh, appearance to him. Yeah, I think that's pretty <laughs> deliberate. Yeah, and he says it's been four hours, obviously, since the, the explosion. And he wants to know what his people have figured out. 
And they said a recording device was found wired into the central system. The music was the 1812 Overture. <laughs> and uh, so Heard immediately says, I never want to hear that song again. It's now banned. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, uh, power has gone to his head. Yeah. And uh, they've decided publicly they're going to call the explosion an emergency demolition. Yep. All according to plan. <laughs> exactly. And they've lined up a bunch of experts to go on TV and talk about the dangers of old buildings. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And they got pictures of the masked man, but they couldn't get retinal scans because he had the mask on. And they also got pictures of the girl. And the explosive devices were homemade, so they're very difficult to trace. Kurt makes a big speech about how they've got to put this down, and he ends with England prevails, which everyone repeats. So England prevails, I think, is sort of the Hail Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the Germans, uh, well, the Nazis had uh, Deutschland über alles, which was Germany true, over everyone. Even... So it's almost <laughs> identical. <laughs> yeah, that's even more appropriate. So now we're in the BTN News Network. And, you know, the, the fake report about the explosion is going on. And one of the women who works there asked a guy, do you think people are going to buy this? <laughs> And he says, why not? This is the BTN. Our job is to report the news, not fabricate it. That's the government's job. <laughs> so he has, a, he has a healthy sense of humor about his work. Because <laughs> yeah. It could end up getting him in some hot water. Yeah. So the typical frivolous anchors report that the demolition had been planned for a long time. They said the fireworks that came along with it were not on the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> We've always been at war with Eurasia. <laughs> And the high-level people from that video conference with John Hurt, one of them says, I don't get it. Why does he wear a Guy Fox mask, then blow up the Bailey? Didn't Guy Fox go after the parliament? Maybe that's a little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> and they get a lead on the girl, and we now see again Natalie Portman slash Evie. She has this mundane job at BTN, you know, delivering coffee and packages and that sort of thing. And she brings coffee to Stephen Fry's office. So he is Gordon Dietrich, and he's, you know, one of the managers there. Yeah, he uh, he's a showrunner, I think. He's a host of a show and also yeah. like the producer or something like that. Yep, he's got a pretty good position. Yeah. The bad guys having had a lead on Evie, they burst into her apartment. They find her ID card. We see her pushing a cart of boxes. There's a whole bunch of boxes. They're all exactly the same. And she's moving them around to different apartments. She's asked if those boxes have been x-rayed. And she says, no, they're filled with bombs. You know, she's <laughs> kidding, but not that far away. And she delivers one of the boxes to a backstage area with scantily clad dancers. <laughs> and it turns out the box contains a V mask, you know, one of the Guy Falks masks. And they're like, what the hell is this? Meanwhile, we see the bad guys looking up Evie's records. Turns out her parents were political activists. They were detained when she was 12. So obviously she's very suspicious. Having seen that mask, Evie is freaked out and she like just dumps her walkie-talkie, grabs some keys and runs. And we see that the BTN camera monitors go to static. So maybe something's coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. And V comes out of an elevator at the entrance of BTN, and there's a security guard there, and he pulls a gun, and he threatens to call Storm Section on him. 
And V opens his robe and he's covered in explosives and he puts his thumb on a device in his hand so the guy doesn't dare do anything. Meanwhile, uh, cops show up in cars, Evie's trying to get out of the place, and V is holding this, you know, his thumb on this device, and the security guard who pulled the gun on him is rolling the cart of boxes into the newsroom, you know, because, because V is forcing him to do this. Everyone's told to evacuate the building, the cops spot Evie and go after her, and she runs away. TVs all over London are failing and going to static. And V forces a tech guy to put a DVD into the broadcast system. And so this speech by V is broadcast everywhere all over London. Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this emergency challenge. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility, repetition. Bloody hell. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. But in the spirit of commemoration by those important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, as celebrated with a nice holiday, I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. And the speech ends with him asking everyone to come together one year from now and stand with him, and together they'll give them a 5th of November that shall never be forgotten. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting movie in that, you know, it takes place over a year, you know, and we, we have a year to see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the cops explode the door to the newsroom. There's a bunch of fog in there, so, you know, they have all these cameras because they kind of want to record themselves capturing V, but with all the fog, the cameras aren't picking up anything. A man in a V mask and cloak appears and he begs, don't shoot. But of course he gets shot. And of course it's not V. Yeah. <laughs> we saw this also in Batman, right? Where the Joker dressed everybody up the same for the same reason. And so V, it turns out V has put masks and cloaks on everyone. So they can't identify who V actually is. So the main bad guy comes in and orders everyone with a mask onto their knees. And one of the mask guys tells them that there's a bomb wired to the control booth. It turns out to be the same explosives that he had wrapped around him. And so as the masked people evacuate, the cops focus on one of them, who, of course, is the wrong one. <laughs> so they're all pointing guns on him. And while they're doing that, Behind them, the a real V rises up in a very dramatic fashion and eviscerates everyone with his knives. Meanwhile, a cop disables the bomb. You know, he figures out uh, which wire to cut. A cop gets the drop on the actual V with the gun from behind, so V is in trouble. But Evie is there, and she sees what's happening, and she taps the cop on the shoulder and then pepper sprays him, <laughs> and then he punches her and knocks her out. And then V takes him out. And now Evie is laying on the floor unconscious, and he has to figure out what to do. And we switch to a special emergency report, crisis at Jordan Tower. And there's been a terrorist takeover of Jordan Tower, which ended only moments ago. And they show the first innocent guy getting shot, and they portray that as V getting shot. Yeah. <laughs> And they say, during this heroic raid, the terrorist was shot and killed. <laughs> okay. Evie wakes up on a bed, and she walks out of the room, and there's stone archway corridors and lots of antiques. It's very, you know, 
Very tasteful. Clearly, whoever is here has a lot of taste. Yep, very tasteful. And she's hearing a song. I didn't quite identify the song, but it's a woman, you know, kind of a like country song or something. I think, uh, I think it might have been Cry Me a River. Yeah. There's a few different ones here, but that's one of them, I think. And eventually she finds a jukebox where the music's coming from, and then V appears behind her. And all the stuff she's seen, all the antiques, he's stolen all this from the Ministry of Objectionable Materials. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of fun. And Evie wants to go home or to one of her friend's places, and V points out that's not possible, right? She's now known by the cops. They're going to find her. And he says if he hadn't taken her, she'd now be in a torture cell and probably be killed. He says he can't let her leave. She's seen too much. You know, (laughs) he says even, she's like, oh, I don't know where I am. And he's like, well, you've seen these arches. You've seen the color of the stone. You know, just from that, people could figure things out. So I can't let you leave. But he says, you know, I only have to keep you until the 5th. And she's like, you mean the 5th a year from now? (laughs) (laughs) And now we see a close-up of a frying pan. And I'm proud of myself because, you know, I like to cook. And what we're seeing is what is usually called toad in the hole, Mm. right? It is a piece of bread, you know, with lots of butter or whatever being fried with a, the centers cut out in a circle of the bread. And there is an egg in that circle and that is toad in the hole i mean people in the u.s do it but it's a very english thing mm-hmm. so it's, um, yeah so i was just proud of myself like oh i know what that is <laughs> <laughs> and v is cooking and we see his hands because he normally has these black gloves on but he doesn't now and his hands seem to have no skin you know yeah, you just they're see... really they 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 look scarred very badly yeah, and you just see all the red and the veins and everything, so we'll find out more about that later. And Evie comes in and sees him and apologizes and asks about his hands, and he says, there was a fire a long time ago, ancient history for some, not really good table conversation. <laughs> so he doesn't want to talk about why he doesn't have skin. And so Evie starts eating the toad in the hole, and she says, oh, my God, it's delicious. I haven't had real butter since I was a little girl. Where did you get it? <laughs> and V says, government supply chain on its way to Chancellor Sutler. So Chancellor Sutler is John Hurt, the, the big guy on the screen. Right. Right? He sort of runs everything. So he, he manages to steal butter going to him. Evie challenges him about wanting to blow up Parliament. V says, people should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. And I'll leave that to our audience to see what they feel about. <laughs> we see the main TV presenter we saw earlier, and he's in a shower. He's taking a shower, but it's a very interesting shower setup because all around him are screens where he's watching himself <laughs> presenting the news while he showers. This guy, he's kind of like, he's the government puppet but he also he presents himself in a very folksy way you know like trying to you know he's just looking out for the little folks type of thing yeah and while he's watching these in this shower he's repeating his lines right (laughs) as he's seeing them so he's very proud of those and in the meantime v has just used evie's id to gain entry to his place i'm not quite sure why her id would get her entry but who knows (laughs) and makes his way to the shower 
And V, when he encounters him, calls this guy a commander. And eventually this guy says, why do you keep calling me that? And V says, that was your title when we first met all those years ago. And we get flashbacks to this guy as a commander torturing people. And then we see this guy walking out of a fire, being burned alive, and realize it's probably V. Probably why his hands don't have skin. Right. And then government, you know, cops find the commander dead in his shower. <laughs> they discuss how to handle the voice of London being killed. Because that was him, the voice of London. Mm -hmm. Evie wakes up to the sounds of V practicing his fencing skills on a suit of armor. And in the background, there's a movie playing, and V says, My favorite film, The Count of Monte Cristo. And Evie agrees to watch the film with him, but she tells him he has to put the sword away. And he quotes the film as they watch. By the way, when we watch, especially like rock documentaries or whatever, my girlfriend quotes every single line of every single song, <laughs> which, you know, it's amusing, but also kind of annoying. But anyway, <laughs> Evie feels sorry for the woman, the love interest in the film, because he cared more about revenge than about her. So maybe a little bit more foreshadowing here. <laughs> and after the movie, the news comes on and before V can shut it off, the anchor says the voice of London died of heart failure. And Evie says she's lying. And V asks, how do you know? And Evie says she blinks a lot when she knows the story is false. And Evie then asks V if he took her ID and did he have anything to do with the voice of London dying? And V, you know, in his kind of blunt way, he said, yes, I killed him. <laughs> and they debate whether violence can be used for good. And again, one of these blunt things, Evie says, are you going to kill more people? And V says, yes. <laughs> and the cops are reviewing the Voice of London's military career. And it turns out he ran a prison facility called Lark Hill. And they question a military guy about it. And he pretends he can't remember anything about it. And the records have all been either deleted, omitted, or missing. That happens. <laughs> yeah. Evie tells V her backstory of her parents becoming radicalized and they were eventually kidnapped while she hid under the bed. She asks V if there's anything she can do to help him. V says circumstances are forcing him to act early and he needs someone with theatrical skills, so will she help? And she agrees. Meanwhile, the cops figure out that a priest seems to have been important in things and it turns out this... <laughs> And then we see this scene between a priest and his assistant, and the assistant is supposed to deliver him girls, you know, mm -hmm. underage girls. The priest is upset because the usual girl he gets is not available, and they've sent a girl who is a bit older, and that's very concerning. You don't want an older girl. But, you know, he enters his bedchambers, and there's Evie dressed up as a tardy schoolgirl. Yeah, a very, a very caricatured one, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, the pigtails and all that stuff. Yeah, and kind of red makeup on her cheeks yeah, and all this, yeah. <laughs> And so he decides, even though she's a bit older, she'll do. <laughs> and uh, she says, please, Your Grace, we don't have much time, and I have to tell you something. <laughs> and she's actually trying to 
tell about V or she's kind of betraying V. Yeah. But it's hard with this guy because he's like, a confession? I love the confession game. Yeah, he thinks this is all just kinky stuff. <laughs> yeah. So she says someone is coming to kill him. And he thinks it's all in fun. And then V comes in. And Evie admits to him that she tried to tell the priest the truth. And while she's doing that, you know, never be distracted. The priest opens a Bible that has a gun in it. <laughs> uh, good use for a Bible, I guess. And he shoots at V and V disables him and then kills him. And then we see Creedy and, and Creedy, uh, we'll hear about him a lot to the movie. He's the complete head of the, the whole, you know, cop system. Yeah. Right? He's, uh, he's yeah. Sutler's enforcer. Yeah. And he is upset because several prominent party members have now been murdered. And he implies that the head investigator, the main cop may be involved. You know, he just wants this to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. We see Evie ringing the doorbell at Stephen Fry's house and he answers and he pours the two of them some scotch, which seems very civilized. And she apologizes for coming to him, which is, This is a pretty big deal. She's like, well, everyone's looking for me. So they're now probably going to be looking for you. <laughs> it's like, you know, thanks. But Stephen Fry says, if the government ever searches my house, you would be the least of my problems. <laughs> he shows her to a secret room, which has a bunch of banned art criticizing the government. And he has documents like the Quran. Yeah, so he's, uh, he's got a collection similar to V's. Yeah, that's true. And also Fahrenheit 451 had a kind of a similar thing where, you know, a bunch of band stuff being there. Hmm. And looking at some of the photos that have men dealing with men, you know, she sort of picks up on something and he admits to being gay. And it, in fact says he had invited her at some point, you know, to, to a dinner or something just so that he could keep up the pretense of not being gay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's one of the ongoing themes is that this government is, is down on that sort of thing. Mm. Meanwhile, the head cop visits the coroner and she says the poison for the voice of London guy can't be traced. And he hands her the unique rose that V leaves with each of his kills. And she says, this rose is supposed to be extinct. It doesn't exist. And the cops are now looking at some records and we don't really know what they mean, but they're like, oh, he's killed all but one. And the one remaining is a woman. And meanwhile, this is one of those switch back and forth things. We see the woman is the coroner opening a safe and she takes out a book. And meanwhile, the cops figure out that she must be the one remaining person that he hasn't killed. And I don't, again, I don't know what this group of people was or, or why they were looking at them. Well, these, these were the people who ran Lark Hill, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So now she, the coroner is in bed and she hears something and she immediately knows what's going on. And she says, it's you, isn't it? Come to kill me. And V says, yes. And she says, thank God. And V says, what they did was only possible because of you. I've not come for what you hoped to do. I've come for what you did. And he gives her a rose. And she says, so you're going to kill me now. And he says, no, I killed you 10 minutes ago while you slept. And he holds up a syringe. So, well, she was sleeping. He had, you know, injected her with poison. 
And before dying, she apologizes. And this is, that's kind of a neat little moment because she says something yeah. like, would it be, is it too late to apologize? Like, like she's not trying to get out of it. She's just apologizing because mm. it's, she wants to mm. apologize. And he says, never, which is saying, no, that's, uh, I'll take your apology. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. And he leaves a book behind for the cops to find that tells his story. And then we switch to, you know, the big screen with John Hurt. <laughs> He's warning the cops not to reveal the contents of that book. And then we see this flashback from the woman who just died about, you know, a new batch of subjects arriving. The patients are all injected with something. And she says over 75% of them die. One case gives her hope. He exhibits none of the problems of the others. There's something in his blood, but he can't remember who he was or where he's from. And then we see a cell door marked with the letter V. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's sort of uh, panning past a bunch of doors with Roman numerals. So V means he's number five. Right. In the prison where he was being kept on November the 5th, there's a bunch of explosions. <laughs> and he... As we saw previously, he emerges from the fire, from the explosions. His skin has been burned off. He screams. I believe his eyes have been burned out, too. Yeah, well, that's a little weird to understand because, I mean, obviously he can see, so. I don't think so. I think he's supposed yeah. to be blind. Which, okay. And, and that's, you know, not entirely plausible in my book, although I know that <laughs> the, the superhero, the daredevil, it is a similar kind right. of thing. Yeah, because he does very precision things. Strap mm -hmm. <laughs> the film would be hard to imagine without him being able to see. Yeah. It. So, yeah, they do say that. It's just hard to imagine how it works. And like you said, with Daredevil, there's an explanation, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, they did. They had some throwaway line that I, I thought mentioned he had, like, Super reflexes and super echolocation ability, right? Maybe mm. I just imagined that. I thought they had <laughs> just one brief line about. Uh, maybe they did. I might have missed it. And once again, we see a close-up of uh, Toad in the Hole being cooked. But this time, it's being fixed by Stephen Fry. <laughs> and then <laughs> he calls it Iggy in the Basket. Yeah. So I've never, never heard that I before. Think, but, I think uh, I heard mm -hmm. it as Eggy in the Basket. Could be either. <laughs> yeah. Evie is freaked out by the coincidence that he cooked her the same thing that V did. And then, you know, Fry pretends he is actually V just to freak her out. Yeah, he's a, he's sort of a friendly, uh, you know, he likes to make a lot of jokes type of guy. Yeah. Meanwhile, the main cop, he's a guy I've seen many, many times. You know, he's a British actor, but I uh, did, never caught his name in this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The main cop is looking through online documents about this plague that killed a chunk of the population. One of the things I find humorous about this, or I guess humorous is the wrong word, but as we go along, they make a big deal that this plague killed about 100,000 people. If <laughs> we look at, oh, you know, a recent plague we went through, it killed a lot more people than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but these 100,000 were all in three, well, well, they were all in England. Yeah. So he asks his partner, what if this wasn't done by a religious extremist, as the official story says, you know, so there's this whole storyline about how religious extremists created the plague. He says, if our own government was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people, would you really want to know? Mm -hmm. 
And that is halfway through the movie. So we see a van driving down the street at night. It's got a big radio dishes on the top of it. As it drives, we hear some snippets of various conversations going on in the neighborhood around it. Some of them are innocuous or out of context, and a few of them are the kind of thing that a government like this might take an interest in. <laughs> Next, we see that uh, the black room where the men gather to watch their chancellor on the big screen. One of them is saying, based on random audio sweeps, uh, which was the van, of course, 80% of the public believe the terrorist is still alive. And there's also been a 12% increase in positive mention, which is the public approval of the terrorists. So, mm-hmm. so not only is the public not buying what the government's laying down, they're actually liking the terrorists more than ever. <laughs> Creedy, he's the, uh, he's the chancellor's right-hand man, the, the enforcer. Uh, he says that arrests are as high as they've ever been since the reclamation. So I presume the reclamation was the party's rise to power. Yeah, and I think the chancellor's not impressed. He still thinks that more arrests could be done. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he says he doesn't want arrests. He wants results. (laughs) So back at Gordon Dietrich's place, that's the Stephen Fry character, he pours champagne for himself and Evie. He says he's celebrating. He says this could be the best show we've ever done. Yeah, and he's he's very deluded about this, right? Because we're about to see this this very transgressional show, and he's like, "Oh, you know, maybe they'll slap my wrist. It's not going to be a problem." And if you're like, "Are you kidding?" Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Although he could be right that it's the best show they've ever done. I mean, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it looks it looks like a very lowbrow Benny Hill type uh, show. <laughs> and they well, actually played Benny, Benny Hill music. Yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll 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 get to that very shortly. <laughs> So they watch, and uh, Dietrich, he's he's uh, like a talk show host, on, at least on this segment of the show. He's sitting behind a desk, and he's welcoming Chancellor Adam Sutler. And a guy comes out who uh, bears a pretty strong resemblance to him. And here, uh, here's a fun fact, which is something that I actually knew before watching this movie, is that a Sutler, um, well, a Sutler, in my experience, was a vendor at a U.S. Civil War reenactment, but uh, I looked up a definition. More generally, it was just a person who followed an army and sold provisions to the soldiers. Mm. So there may be some word choice or name choice, you know, deliberate intent going mm-hmm. on there. But anyway, as this is going on, uh, Gordon says, we threw out the censor-approved script, which uh, typically <laughs> is a risky move. Society mm-hmm. like that. Uh, the subtler impersonator, he comes on stage escorted by two Vegas style showgirls. <laughs> uh, we see people watching in their living rooms and uh, at the bar, and they're smiling. They're, they're very amused. Yeah, at first I thought it might actually be an imitator, but I think they actually did have John Hurt do this role, even yeah, though he's supposed to be in. Yeah. I, I was I was wondering if it was a it was actually him, but it was supposed to be an impersonator. I mean, it is it is right. supposed to be an impersonator in the context of the movie, but I think he might actually be playing. Yeah. So on the show, 
Dietrich tells Suttler that the show brought these girls in to help him relax, and more showgirls come in, and they arrive with a uh, with a glass of milk, which they give to Suttler. A great big glass of milk, you know, probably a pint glass. Uh, Suttler drinks it, and he says, Ah, warm milk, there's nothing better. Um, and this is apparently a known fact about him, uh, that the public knows that he likes warm milk, because uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see soon enough. Uh, the chancellor goes on about how the terrorist has been neutralized. And as he's doing this, there's a guy there in a V outfit, the mask and everything. Then he's sneaking <laughs> under Suttler's chair and mugging for the cameras as much as he can mug with the, the mask on. Um, and he swaps, there's a stand-up ashtray next to Suttler's chair with a cigar in it. And this fake V swaps the cigar for another one. So Suttler picks it up. Finally, he lights it and it blows up in his face. It's, it's harmless, but it's, you know, the old exploding cigar gag. And, uh, <laughs> well, and slightly off topic here, but I'll just mention one of the things I think is amazing in this movie is that we always see V with this mask on, and yet I feel like he totally emotes, right? I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. That's... Again, Hugo Weaving as the actor did an amazing job because you, in you would not think that he knit that he just had a mask and his mouth never moved. Mm-hmm. Or any of that, you know, it really works. Yeah, it's really uh, he he conveys an impressive range of uh, of emotions without facial expression. It's uh, it's pretty uh, pretty well done. And and uh, I don't think we mentioned uh, Hugo Weaving. If for p- people who aren't familiar with him, he was Agent Smith in the Matrix movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and also in Lord of the Rings, he was Elrond, um, wasn't he? Elrond, oh, okay. yeah, yep. So he's probably a face a lot of the people listening have seen before. Actually, the people who directed The Matrix also directed this. Mm-hmm. So there's they probably liked working with him, I guess. Yep, good point. So after the cigar blows up, Gordon Dietrich, he's you know he's he's acting the role you know of the the talk show host, and he points over. He spots the terrorist who's uh, now over with the band. He's playing a watchboard with a spoon (laughs) and, uh, the audience, we cut away again to the audience in the bar and elsewhere. And we can see that they're really having a good time. They're really getting a kick out of this. On the show, Suttler gets up to run over to the terrorist, but his shoelaces are tied together from when the terrorist was under the chair. So he stumbles and then we get the Benny Hill chase sequence, and we do get Yakety Sax, the official uh, yep. anthem of funny chase sequences. <laughs> and uh, there are soldiers, and there's Sutler, there's showgirls. There's V, they're all just running back and forth, you know, the, the Scooby-Doo corridor type of thing. At one point, a guy in a gorilla suit comes through. <laughs> There's a prisoner callback. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, Dietrich throws a banana peel. He's just sitting at his desk still, munching on a banana. He throws the peel, and the fake V slips on it. The soldiers instantly pile on. And Suttler removes the mask to reveal another Suttler. 
<laughs> well, that's a cute little gag, and they squabble a moment. Uh, they even they even do a brief little bit of wrestling, and then they start giving the soldiers orders. They say, "Kill the traitor," and each of them, they alternate the countdown to firing. You know, one's ready, the other's aim, the other's fire, and uh, on fire, the soldiers shoot both of them, and the curtain falls. And uh, mm-hmm. the audience at home is really loving it. That uh, you know, Gordon may have been right when he said that maybe the best episode they ever did. <laughs> on the show, V pops up from wherever he was hiding on the set, and he wiggles his cigar like Groucho Marx used to do. <laughs> and then we get a scene that uh, I don't think a location we've seen before. It's somebody's living room, and we see a hand gripping a great big pint glass of milk. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, that glass shatters from the tight grip on it. So, apparently, Sutler watches Gordon's show, and he was not uh, impressed. Hmm. Or maybe he started watching when somebody tipped him off about what was going on, because it doesn't seem like the sort of show that Sutler would normally watch, but with the scantily clad women and all. But then we don't really right. know a whole lot about him. Hmm. Anyway, Dietrich is on the phone. He's talking to his agent. He says, well, what are they going to do? Fine us? Big deal. We've got the most watched show on air. Evie looks upset, though. She says, you're mad. And she says, is everything a joke to you, Gordon? Gordon says, only the things that matter. He predicts he'll just have to make an apology and maybe do some kind of fundraiser. And meanwhile, the ratings will go through the yeah, not the best. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's an optimist. I mean, usually an admirable trait. <laughs> but it won't serve him well this time. Because while Evie's sleeping, uh, you know, from that we see Evie in a darkened room sleeping. Then we hear a banging sound, which is a door opening, probably being kicked open or kicked down. And we hear voices coming into the house or the flat. Dietrich bursts into her room and he tells her to hide. She gets under the bed. Mm-hmm. This is a recreation almost of what happened when they came for her parents. Creedy and his men bust down the door. You know, Creedy's the enforcer. And mm-hmm. he says to Gordon, not so funny now, is it, funny man? So that's, and somebody says that to you, that's usually you're in a bad spot there. Yeah. So from Evie's viewpoint, we can see that... Uh, Creedy bashes Gordon in the face with a police baton. Gordon gets a good uh, bloodied lip out of it. His head's down on the floor. Some of the other enforcers put a black hood over his head and zip it up. And Evie's horrified, but unlike a previous flashback when her mom was captured, in that flashback, she couldn't help screaming, which, of course, Mm. gave away her position hiding under the bed. This time she manages to stay quiet. Yeah, I'm going to say, this all reminds me, I don't know if you saw this. There, I didn't watch the whole video, I couldn't do it, but there was a comedian in Afghanistan, and after we left and let the Taliban take over, whatever people feel about that, they were videoing it, and they put this comedian in a car, and he just kept making jokes and insulting them. And then they took him off and killed him. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So this kind of reminds me of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a comedian should try to know his audience at least. 
<laughs> I guess so. Well, yeah, it is unfortunate, though. So they they drag Gordon out of the room, and for a moment, Evie's got the room to herself. She goes out the window, but it's it's very high up. She doesn't really have any other options, so she drops to the ground. You know, she tries to sort of hang off the lip of a side turret to get down a little closer to the ground. Uh, drops mm-hmm. down, and we see her going out a side gate, but then we hear someone say, gotcha, and this dark figure behind her puts a hood over. Mm-hmm. So when she comes to, she's in an interrogation room, and she's got two bright lights typical interrogation room overhead lights uh, pointing right in her face between them is the interrogator who's only a silhouette and I I thought here no I had seen this movie before but it was many years ago as soon as he started talking I thought his voice sounded a little familiar <laughs> anyway uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes the interrogator says she's in big trouble death penalty trouble but if she reveals the whereabouts of Codename V, as he calls him, and the information leads to his capture, she'll be released immediately, which is, yeah, I wouldn't bet too much on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's terrified, but she doesn't say anything. Then we see a, see a few quick scenes of uh, her treatment in the prison. She's in a barber chair getting her hair shaved off with an electric trimmer. Uh, then she's in her dark cell. She's got this little salmon-colored prison outfit. Uh, mm. and then she's naked. You know, nothing nothing provocative, Sean. But she's being deloused. She's back in her cell, and a hand slips a plate of unappetizing food through a slot that's in the door near the ground. So just slides it in on the floor. She doesn't make a move for the plate. And very shortly, a mouse comes out of a hole in the wall to help himself. Mm-hmm. Some time passes, and Evie hears scratching at that mouse hole. She reaches into it, which uh, I wouldn't be too quick to do that. It's a good way to get rabies. <laughs> but uh, she pulls out a small rolled-up sheet of this crispy-sounding translucent paper. I think it's onion skin paper, probably. Although, mm-hmm. when she starts reading, when Evie starts reading, she finds out the author's name is Valerie, and Valerie mm. is horrified that she's writing her autobiography on toilet paper. So uh, the toilet paper here is uh, about as absorbent as the paper towels at my workplace. <laughs> Maybe this is an escape plan that Valerie has written for her, but no, it's just a love story. So we hear the story of how Valerie was in school. She fell in love with a girl. They broke up after a while, but then she fell in love with a second girl. Valerie brought her to meet her parents and uh, told her parents that they were in love. Parents did not take it well at all. Dad kicked her out, threw away her baby picture on top of it, uh, and the mother just sat there crying. wasn't the way Valerie hoped it would go. But she says she had to do it. She says, our integrity is the very last inch of us, but within that inch, we are free. And that's the end of toilet paper narrative number one. (laughs) Suddenly, very abruptly, we cut to Evie's face underwater. We're viewing her face full on, uh, but viewing it from the bottom of a toilet bowl. The interrogator pulls her head out of the toilet and says, it ends whenever you want it to. 
She says, I don't know. Mm-hmm. They drag her back into the cell. She's not unconscious, but she's, uh, she's close to it. And it turns out there's another note in the wall. This one tells about how Valeria became an actress. She had one feature film, and she met another woman named Ruth that she fell in love with. They moved to a flat in London, and Ruth grew Scarlet Castle roses. Then America got into a war. I think somewhere we hear that it was a civil war. And Britain ended up getting involved in the war somehow. Which, uh, you know, I guess uh, we've gotten involved in a few Britain's wars, so mm-hmm. it all evens out, I guess. Settler, who was then the Under Secretary of Defense, closed all the subways, and that was the end of the roads. <laughs> we cut to Evie being thrown into the cell again, told she's going to die here. Now there's a third note in the mouse hole. Valerie talks about the rise of Norse fire, which is settlers' political party. So it's a combination of you know, strident Christianity with white supremacy. So, uh, mm. And boy, the danger of that happening in Britain is greater now than ever, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll save my remarks for, for the analysis portion. <laughs> but Valerie says, I remember how different became dangerous. And we see Norse Fire's agents rousting a couple of guys who are sleeping in a bed. Ruth goes out to get some food, and she gets captured, too. Soon after, they come for Valerie, too, and shave her head. You know, she's in prison as well now. And Valerie ends up, she says, I shall die here. Every inch of me shall perish. Every inch but one. And she's referring to that inch of integrity that she met before. Mm. Now she ends with well wishes, and she says, essentially, and she goes on a little more than this, but essentially she says, even though I have never met you, I love you with all my heart. <laughs> Evie has a tear running down her cheek. Mm-hmm. Then we cut back to the interrogation room. Evie is told that she's been convicted by a special tribunal, and unless she starts talking now, she's going to be executed. He asks if she understands, and she says yes. He asks if she's ready to cooperate, and she says no. <laughs> so he tells the guard to arrange a, a detail of six men, take her out behind the chemical shed, and shoot her. Shortly thereafter, her cell door opens and a man arrives. He makes one last effort to persuade her. Evie says, thank you, but I'd rather die behind the chemical sheds. And the man has an odd reply. He says, then you have no fear anymore. You're completely free. And he just leaves. And the cell door is still open. So Evie gingerly looks out of the cell and makes her way out into the hallway. At the other end of the hall, there's a guard with a submachine gun. But when she gets up to it, she sees that it's actually a mannequin. Mm-hmm. She opens the door at the end of the hall, and it leads right into V's home. Yep. He's there. He greets her. She realizes it was all a put-on. Yeah, and I will say, I think this is the best part of the movie, both her going through all this and then realizing this, because it's just so, such a massive betrayal. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Yeah, it was a very, it uh, looks like she, she wasn't expecting it at all. She, she never expected anything, but that it was a genuine prison. She starts to ask about what happened to Gordon Dietrich and V interrupts. He says, I'm sorry, but Mr. Dietrich's dead. V had expected that he'd be arrested at least, but there was a Koran in Gordon's house, so he was executed. Evie is a bit upset that V shaved off her hair and tortured her. She uh, she mentions both of those. The torture seems a little worse, but uh, <laughs> either one's nice. And she says, why? And V says, you said you wanted to live without fear. He goes on to explain that every day he wanted to end it, end the whole charade of the fake prison. But every day she refused to give in, and he couldn't end it. Evie says, I hate you. He replies, <laughs> that's it. See, at first I thought it was hate, too. Hate was all I knew. He refers to a remark that Evie's father had made, she had told him about earlier, about uh, using lies to tell the truth. The prison was a lie, he says, but she learned something true about herself. She starts crying and uh, and hyperventilating. It's really, uh, really quite, I thought, a convincing bout of mm -hmm. flipping out. She sinks to kneeling on the floor, and V joins her. He tells her, this may be the most important moment of your life. Commit to it. He lists all the things she's lost, all the family members, and he says she thought all she had left was her life, but in there, in the prison, she found something that mattered more to her than life. He says, try to feel now what you felt then. And she starts to calm down, but she says she needs air, so he takes her to the roof. He has a nice view of London, though it's not real clear because it's raining outside. It's raining pretty hard. She walks toward the balcony in the rainstorm, and she raises her hands to the sky. And as she does so, we see V watching her from the doorway, and we see flashbacks to that figure we saw before in the uh, in the flames at Lark Hill, you know, who is presumably V. And he mm. is uh, he's making that same gesture as he's gotten out of the flames. He's raising his hands to the sky. Back inside, he puts a slow song on the jukebox. Evie says she's leaving. He tells her there are no more locked doors here. She gives him back the, the roll-up papers that she got from the mouse hole. V asks if he may show her something before she goes. Turns out he has a whole side room set up as a shrine to Valerie, with her movie poster mm. being the centerpiece of it, a movie called The, the Salt Flats, if I remember right. He says, she wrote the letter just before she died, and I delivered it to you as it had been delivered to me. Evie speculates that he's doing what he's doing because of what they did to her and also what they did to him. He says what was done to him was monstrous. She replies, and they created a monster. He doesn't really have any smart comeback for that. She says she doesn't know where she'll go from here, but she's not scared. She thanks him for not being scared that uh, he put her in that place. And she seems, she gets up close to him, she seems just about to kiss the mask, and then she backs off a couple inches. Hmm. He, he asks if he might see her only once more before the fifth 
She says, all right. And we see her walking off down a street. And back in V's home, he takes off his mask. We, we, his face is in shadow, so we don't see the face. He punches a lampshade, and it shatters. And then he cries with his head in his hands. Mm-hmm. Then we see the uh, the chancellor on the big monitor again in the dark star chamber type room. One of the guys says that the terrorists might use an airborne attack or they might attack via train. Chief Inf- Inspector Finch, he's the main cop who's been doing mm. all the research. He filed that report about the, the trains and the airplanes. And uh, Sutler doesn't seem very impressed with it. Thinks Finch is jerking him around a little, I guess. Or just wasting the government's time. Something. He's not impressed. Sutler wants to give a message that will terrify everyone into remembering that they need the government. The news reports are broadcasting on television now. This isn't in that room anymore. Uh, We see on, on the streets, the news reports are saying the terrorist organization called V is linked to the St. Mary's viral attack on London 14 years ago, which was where uh, Evie's brother died at Mm. school and so forth. Evie's watching this on a television in a shop window, and uh, she's poker-faced. We don't really see what she thinks about it. She's just watching it. Inspector Finch and his colleague discuss three guys who worked for Creedy who died or went missing the day after all the St. Mary's disaster occurred. The inspector recognizes the name Rookwood, and it turns out when he goes to search his email, he has an email from him. Apparently, Mm. he says it was triggered to be sent by searching for records on Rookwood. Rookwood in the email says reply for more information. We go from that to the two cops walking into a darkened memorial to the victims of the St. Mary's virus. There's a man sitting in there. He's he's in your conventional uh, subterfuge garb. He's got a (laughs) trench coat and fedora. Uh, He's got some Ozzy Osbourne glasses with black lenses. He's got a white cane, um, so he's masquerading as a blind man, except he actually... If I understand the story correctly, he actually is a blind man because, well, this is a spoiler. This this is not Rookwood. This is V. It's pretty guessable. But anyway, V gives a little, or who they think is Rookwood, gives a little exposition dump. Mm -hmm. He tells the story of a deeply religious man who was a member of the conservative party. And this was, uh, this was Sutler. We see Sutler speaking on a platform adorned with this red and black double cross logo of Norse fire. And there's a party parade of party flags marching by. It's very, uh, very Nazi-esque. The party becomes stronger and stronger and, and it launches a secret project. It involves hmm. experiments on people and it results in the creation of a virus from the blood of one of the test subjects. And I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but presumably it's V because he's got so many remarkable Mm. physical abilities. Creedy suggested to Sutler that the virus should be used not against the country's enemies, but the country itself. So they target a school, a subway station, and a water treatment plant. Mm. At first, hundreds die. 
The media fuels panic and divides the country, which sounds unlikely to me. <laughs> anyway, Sutler wins the next election as a result of the virus. And we see briefly a pie chart showing that Norse Fire is separate from the other parties, including the Conservative Party. So at some point, Norse Fire uh, became its own thing instead of the Conservative Party. And a pharmaceutical company, the, the narrator continues, which happened to have a lot of investors uh, who belong to Norse Fire, it releases a cure and the inner circle gets rich. Again, very, very implausible plot there. Uh, a climate of fear still has been created, which uh, elevates Sutler to the new position of high chancellor. Hmm. That's the end of Rookwood's story. The, the inspector at this point, I think, uh, I don't think he wants to believe it, but he also has been finding out enough loose ends that he can't be entirely skeptical. Mm. Inspector Finch wants to take him into protective custody, but Rookwood says, if, if you want the recording, you'll do what I tell you to do, which is to put Creedy under 24-hour surveillance. And that, that, that would be pretty bold move. I mean, mm. uh, you know, this guy isn't your garden variety inspector. He's some, you know, he'd be like the equivalent of somebody who's high up in the justice department, probably. Mm. Uh, but still Creedy is the, he's like the barrier of England. <laughs> so he's not, <laughs> not somebody you want to get on his bad side. When Rookwood feels safe that Inspector Finch is watching Creedy nonstop, he says he'll be in touch. The inspector asks him, what were you waiting for? And Rookwood says, well, for you, Inspector. Mm -hmm. We see Creedy tending some orchids in a greenhouse. V sneaks up and puts a knife to his throat, and he turns off the lights and turns on Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> So this hides sound from the security staff, and they don't seem particularly interested. They're not curious about what creepy Creedy is up to. <laughs> they say they'd rather not know. V tells Creedy that after he blows up Parliament, Sutler will need a scapegoat, and it will be Creedy. And he thinks mm -hmm. that Creedy knows this and has a plan. But Sutler knows this too, and Creedy's being watched all the time. V says he wants Sutler, that is, V wants Sutler, but Sutler's being kept underground for security. So, if Creedy's men take out Sutler, V will turn mm. himself in. <laughs> Creedy, if he wants to accept the deal, he should mark a chalk X on his door. <laughs> That's a pretty old-fashioned one. <laughs> Yeah, like the, the blood on the door frame at, uh, mm. uh, what was it? Passover. Yep. Yeah. So Evie watches that old black and white swashbuckling movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. She's watching it again. We just get a brief glimpse of her doing that. And Finch gets a call from a police precinct. The captain knew that Finch was looking for Rookwood or looking for information on Rookwood. Captain took some initiative and searched old John Doe cases, unidentified bodies. It turns out Rookwood's corpse was found as a floater 20 years ago. 
that was a perfect dental match. And we get a quick glimpse of a Rookwood latex face mask and glasses and so forth hanging up on mannequin heads in V's home. Mm -hmm. And when he realizes that he was feet away from V, he kicks a garbage can, and now he's more determined than ever to find him. Evie, we see her out in the city. She rounds a corner, and there's a kid with a spray can standing there. (laughs) When she appears, the, the kid runs away. It turns out the kid was starting to paint a red V on a government poster. Mm. The the word is spreading. Uh, We see the chancellor on his his big monitor again, and 347 days have passed, and V is still free. So it's it's (laughs) almost November 5th. Mm -hmm. Sutler is not happy about V still being free. Creedy starts to make an excuse, and Sutler tells him, we are being buried beneath the avalanche of your inadequacies, Mr. Creedy. <laughs> now, Creedy's getting, getting in a bad way with the boss there. Mm. And we see V set a domino down on a bare floor. Mm. And we'll see more of these dominoes as this little montage goes by. It's not really a montage in the sense that it's yeah, we, we don't have the backing music and all that. It's just sort of one little vignette after another. This domino is mostly red, but one one of the broad sides of it is black. It's like red on one side, and then the edge, edges are all red, but then the one other side is black. Mm-hmm. So he sets a domino on a bare floor, and we see a train yard where boxcars containing stacks and stacks of boxes are arriving. Then we see a delivery truck with the same logo as the boxes that were in the boxcars. A delivery truck takes one of these boxes to Finch's house. He opens it to find that it's a V-mask. And right away we see him in the office. He's asking, how many went out? And the answer is there were at least several hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. We see a kid in a V outfit playing outside. It might be the same kid who was spraying on that poster before. We see Sutler on the big monitor. He says, I want anyone with one of those masks arrested. Then we see an armed robber in a V outfit holding up a store. So at least that one would be good to arrest, probably. Finch says the city is in chaos. And Sutler's on the big monitor again, and he's holding Creedy personally responsible. Then we mm-hmm. see V setting up more dominoes. And uh, again, V, if I understand right, V is supposed to be blind in this movie. So he's this domino thing that he's doing is going <laughs> to end up being one of the more, one of the bigger occasions for willing suspension of disbelief. We see Creedy's door. Uh, it's presumably Creedy's door because there's a big white X on it. We don't know of anybody else who has a reason to do that. So uh, looks like he's uh, he's getting a little too nervous. Uh, he's he's ready for uh, for a deal. Although of course it could be a could be duplicity too. Could be a trap. Hmm. Finch, it turns out, went to Lark Hill last night. Uh, outside the, he, he, he ventured outside the quarantine zone. He actually broke the law in pursuit of, uh, this information. And he says that he got a feeling that everything was connected. And we see various 
flashes of scenes from earlier in the movie. You know, the original Guy Fox, Gordon Dietrich, the girl vandalizing the sign, V setting up his domino run, so forth. He says, it was like I could see the whole thing, one long chain of events. He says it was like a perfect pattern, and we're all part of it and all trapped by it. Uh, furthermore, Finch thinks that someone's going to do something stupid, and then chaos will escalate. And then he says Sutler will be forced to do the only thing he knows how to do. Mm -hmm. And then we see V flicking a domino, setting off a great big domino chain reaction. This is a circle of dominoes. I think around 10 feet across. I mean, they show you an overhead view that includes him squatting down next to the circle and the circle itself. And to me, I, I estimated about 10 feet across. So a great mm -hmm. display. And it's a red V in a red circle on a black background, which, uh, you know, very striking. Although uh, it mm. would also be a good logo for Norse fire. So we should have <laughs> chosen other colors. As the dominoes fall, we get quick cuts to scenes of riots going on. You know, the riot shields and helmets and batons and usual rioting stuff. When the dominoes stop falling, one of them is still standing. It's buttressed between two others that presumably fell on it at exactly the same time. Mm. And V picks it up. We see Finch probably at home, maybe in a hotel room. The clock turns to seven, and he looks out at the sunset, and he wonders whether V is ready for his big night, and he wonders whether the rest of us are. In his domino room, V hears a song playing on his jukebox, and he goes out to see what's going on, and Evie is there playing a song. Mm. They greet each other. He asks how she avoided detection. She says a fake ID. Works better than a Guy Fox mask. <laughs> she tells V about being in line at the market, and an old co-worker got in line right behind her, even looked her right in the eye, and didn't recognize her at all. That's how much, mm. that's how much V has changed her. V asks her to dance with him. She says, on the eve of your revolution, V says, a revolution without dancing is a revolution not worth having. <laughs> she says she'd love to. We see Sutler on his big screen once again. He's giving a speech tonight, and protesters and agitators and all those ne'er-do-wells will be made examples of. Mm -hmm. In this scene, uh, he looks pretty angry and red-faced in this scene, so I don't know if he did some exercise before this scene or he had, what he did to prepare for it. It could just be makeup, I guess, but it, uh, he looks he looks angry. <laughs> One of the subordinates starts to bring up a point, but Sutler interrupts him. He says, if anything happens to Parliament, the only difference it'll make is that tomorrow morning, instead of the newspaper, it'll be reading Creedy's resignation. As Evie and V dance, Evie laments that she knows almost nothing about V, not even what he looks like. And she, she reaches for his mask as if to remove it, but B, V gently pulls her hands away. He says, there is a face beneath this mask, but it's not me. From the little glimpses we got of him escaping from the flaming research facility, his face was really as badly scarred as, as his hands were. 
Yeah. So, uh, it's understandable that he'd be sensitive about it. Finch and his assistant are driving in a car. Uh, the assistant says that Parliament is heavily defended. They've got tanks and soldiers and all kinds of stuff. He asks what Finch thinks will happen. Finch says, what usually happens when people without guns stand up to people with guns? <laughs> he has the assistant pull over and he goes to look in some tunnels. He's searched the tunnels before. I guess he has a hunch. And then we see V leading Evie into tunnels, perhaps the same tunnels that Finch is heading into. Uh, these tunnels were closed, but V says that he spent 10 years clearing tracks and laying tracks. Mm. And in here, there's a subway train. And one of the cars of the train is full of lots and lots of explosives. Evie says the tracks lead to Parliament. Uh, <laughs> and she says, then it's really going to happen, isn't it? V says, it will if you want it to. V's gift to her uh, that he took her here to see, he's giving her everything he has, his home and everything in it, but also this train, mm. all to do with as she will. He says he realized that this is not his choice to make. This world he helped shape will end tonight, and tomorrow a different world will begin that different people will shape. V begins to leave the tunnels, and Evie tries to keep him from leaving. V says, all I want, all I deserve, is at the end of that. <laughs> Evie says, that's not true, and she kisses his mask on, yeah, on the lips of the mask. He pauses, uh... For a, for a little bit, maybe five seconds, you know, it's, it's a bit of a pause. And then he says, mm -hmm. I can't. And he turns and rushes away. We see Sutler giving his address. Uh, he's on big public television screens, uh, <laughs> you know, in uh, some busy part of London. I'm thinking it's um, Piccadilly Circus, maybe. It's, it's mm. big Times Square type of displays. He's given his big speech. And... While he does this, Creedy is leading men into the tunnels. And V shows up in their midst. He says, Penny for the guy. <laughs> Which is the uh, the Guy Fox Day tradition. V says, I have kept my side of the bargain, but have you kept yours? Creedy says, bring him down. And for just a moment, I thought that meant uh, shoot V. But no, what it means is they're going to bring somebody down the stairs. We get a few quick shots of all the places we've seen people watching TV, the living rooms, the bars, and Sutler is on the TV in each of these places, but nobody's watching. Nobody's even mm -hmm. in these places. They're just empty. Mm -hmm. And then Creedy's men drag someone in a hood down the subway steps to the little room at the bottom where V is standing, and they remove this hood, and... This is Chancellor Sutler himself. V puts a rose in Sutler's lapel and turns away. Creedy says, disgusting, and shoots Sutler in the forehead. <laughs> so he, uh, he showed Sutler what was what there. Next, Creedy tells V to take off his mask, and he refuses. So, arguably, V is breaching his promise to turn himself in. Two henchmen move in to remove it, and V chops them up with his knives. <laughs> he says, the only thing that you and I have in common, Mr. Creedy, is we're both about to die. Creedy yeah. asks him how, and V replies, 
with my hands around your neck. Mm. Cootie replies, bollocks. <laughs> and it doesn't seem too likely if you hadn't already had some personal acquaintance with V as we've gained. Still famous last words. <laughs> or famous last word. <laughs> <laughs> because in addition to Creedy, there's a ring of about a dozen men, you know, uh, with Creedy. They're, they're all gathered around V, and they start shooting him. Some are even shooting with submachine guns. So he takes quite a few bullets. He, mm -hmm. he thrashes around somewhat. He stays standing. He thrashes around somewhat. Finally, the shooting stops. He hunches over and breathes heavily for a moment. And then he says, my turn. <laughs> and this is very dramatic, but we don't really know how he survived all those bullets. Yeah, right? we, uh, yeah. we will shortly, we'll see that he was wearing some protective gear, but it wasn't completely protective. Yeah. So V goes into doing a bunch of his knife stuff while Creedy is reloading and uh, he takes out one guy after another and uh, if V is doing this all by echolocation it's uh, it's pretty pretty impressive footwork here. Even <laughs> if he's not doing it, even if he has perfectly functioning eyes, it's uh, pretty good stuff. Mm. Finally only Creedy is left. As V approaches Creedy, Creedy empties his cylinder into V. Uh, and he says, why won't you die? V <laughs> replies, beneath this mask, there is an idea, Mr. Creedy. And ideas are bulletproof. <laughs> v grabs Creedy by the throat. He holds him up against uh, one of those collapsible subway gates. And he snaps his neck. Mm -hmm. So he's fulfilled the prophecy with my hands around your neck. And now V removes his chest armor, and we can see it's full of holes, and there's also a good deal of blood on it. So the yeah. armor kept him around long enough, but uh, it's uh, not a permanent solution. We see Evie sitting on a subway bench by the train. She's thinking, uh, making her choice. Mm -hmm. At Parliament, we see that the soldiers are there and ready to defend the building. V stumbles back down the tunnels to the train. He falls to the floor. Evie holds him in her arms. V confesses that he fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. She says, I don't want you to die. And he replies, that's the most beautiful thing you could have ever given me. And he dies. Mm -hmm. And Evie <laughs> weeps. The soldiers at Parliament suddenly see a bunch of V impersonators coming. Uh, they're really swarming from everywhere. And then back in the subway, we see that Evie has converted a bench inside the train car uh, right next to the explosives. She's converted this bench into a beer for V. There's lots of red roses. It's very, mm. very elegant. Finch arrives with his gun drawn, and he sees V lying there dead, and he says, then it's over. Evie says, almost. She puts her hand on the lever to get the train going. Finch tells her to stop. She says no. Then we cut away to Parliament where the imposters, the V imposters, are coming closer and closer mm -hmm. and they're in greater and greater numbers. The soldiers radio for orders, but they don't get an answer. Back in the subway, Evie says, this country needs more than a building right now. It needs hope. Back outside, the soldier in charge orders everyone to stand down. So all the imitation Vs, they move through the lines of the soldiers without opposition. 
an aerial, aerial view shows us uh, there are a lot of these people, and they're coming from all directions. You know, we know that several hundred thousand masks were sent out, so could potentially be a great big crowd. Hmm. We see the face of Big Ben, which, of course, is mounted on a tower attached to the Palace of Westminster, which is the Houses of Parliament buildings that Guy Fawkes tried to blow up. Uh, we see the face of Big Ben. The hands are standing at one to midnight, and the little or the big hand, the minute hand, advances to midnight. Mm-hmm. Evie says it's time, and Finch stands there, not saying anything. She pulls the switch and she exits the car. The doors close and the train begins moving. Yep. Outside, the crowds watch Parliament as speakers all around the city start playing the 1812 Overture. <laughs> And the Houses of Parliament blow up with good special effects and a lot of fireworks. (laughs) Fitch asks Evie who he was, who V was, and Evie says he was all of us. We see the crowd watching the destruction of Parliament. The crowd doffs its hats and masks, and they watch with their faces exposed. Evie says no one will ever forget. This is her narrating now. She's not talking to Finch. She says no Mm -hmm. one will ever forget that night. So this is kind of a callback to the Remember, Remember poem. Mm -hmm. And she will never forget that man and what he meant to her. Then we see one final firework, a big red V. That's the end. (laughs) Okay, well, back to our discussion with Taylor. So when you're blowing up Parliament, it's like no time has passed at all. So here we are, <laughs> back with Taylor. So Guy, uh, what was your history with this movie? Did you you had seen it before, right? Uh, yeah, I saw it a while ago. Um, I'd I'd heard about it uh, various places. You know, on the internet, they had that group uh, anonymous that wore those masks and you know so I, uh <laughs> but i i hadn't i i knew it was written by that comic book writing guy and, uh you know I, I knew a few little scattered facts about it probably some of what i knew i had gotten from talking to you yeah i just uh i finally got around to watching it and i uh I remember thinking I uh, it was a, it was a fun movie. It, it wasn't one of my all-time favorites, but I, I enjoyed it. And that was pretty much still my reaction. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff in the movie, and there's some silly stuff too. But uh, oh, it's uh, it's fun. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned earlier. I mean, I find it disturbing. So first of all, I do. I think it's a very good movie. I think the writing is really good, and the acting is really good, and it's and it's freaking amazing that uh it's based on his name um who played v uh who was agent smith hugo weaving okay uh, it, it's just freaking amazing that hugo weaving pulled off this performance and voice with a mask on the entire time you know it, do, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're watching an unmoving face right i wonder if and they, most actors like won't play a role like that I wonder if they redubbed his lines uh so that they were muffled by the mask Oh, almost certainly. In fact, uh, it, it they started the movie with a another actor 
the guy who played Mark Antony in Rome, if you ever watched that series, a really good series. Mm -hmm. um, he he originally started the character, and he had some differences with their portrayal, so he left the movie, hmm. and Hugo Weaving came in, and he just, you know, they didn't reshoot those scenes. He just overdubbed oh, um, okay. the parts that that he had been in. Yeah. So, but I find it disturbing, and you know, in the days of January six and everything, it's all the more so, which is kind of like what Taylor was saying. This isn't, I mean, it, 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 of course it's a, it's fiction that is positing this kind of government coming along. And I, I think that's a really interesting question that I want to put to you guys, because as we said, it's not like, you know, George Bush or people that we, that, that people might not like and, and might kind of overheatedly call, you know, total fascists and all that. They were not out doing these things to to the populace and 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 such and or thatcher or reagan and so the idea of kind of fantasizing about blowing up the government and having total chaos and anarchy for sort of typical western governments i find very disturbing but you know if you if i was in various other countries say north korea as an example mm -hmm. Uh, I'd be pretty supportive of this kind of action, right? So, mm -hmm. so I'm very mixed on how to respond to this. I don't know, what do you think about that, Taylor? You know, it's funny because every time I watch this thing, I get a different response. So, like, I want to start with the the church because I not the church the um, the courthouse that they blew up in the beginning. I think that's a a more symbolic part of the movie that that hits the point home about you know there's no longer justice in this fascistic society and this is where it makes more sense that the author was critiquing or criticizing or comparing uh fascism and anarchism because the inner libertarian me in high school loved that scene because it was like oh if the system's gone you know gone to crap burn the whole thing down start over the symbolism is important where when i was watching it recently and i'm now almost 10 years out of high school i sort of watched that part puzzled because blowing up the courthouse and by extension blowing up the parliament didn't actually achieve anything mm -hmm. outside of the spectacle and it definitely felt like you know ideologically it wouldn't have achieved anything so i sort of walked away feeling confused as to how to sort of take the actions too because you know in civil society societies that embrace freedom and stuff like that you don't act so reckless so i i also now am concerned especially in light like you said january 6th is an interesting one i am concerned because i'm not sure that the way v went about it is actually the way it should have gone down mm -hmm. um and i i am just as confused every time i watch this i get more and more i don't know how to react to it because it's not as simple as i'm just going to go the complete opposite way blow up some stuff and everything will be better because that's not what actually would have gone down uh, right. which maybe might have been the critique of anarchism that he was going for. <laughs> An interesting difference between this and the gunpowder plot that, you know, the whole thing obviously is kind of inspired by and based on and is part of the movie, is that in the gunpowder plot, it would have made a huge difference because they were, the 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 significance of November 5th is that's the opening day of Parliament. So they were going to blow up everybody in Parliament. Mm. And that okay. obviously would have had a huge impact. Oh, right. Yeah. Right, you, you're right. That's not what's happening here. He's blowing up essentially empty buildings the way that they 
portray it. I think the argument would be that he's trying to provide this impetus and symbolism to get everybody to rise up and that blowing up these buildings will cause them to do that, right? Right. Which is also interesting because every time you see, and again, we, and I, I hate to bring in, you know, really, really current stuff um, into the podcast, but just recently uh, in response to some things that were happening, you know, we had we had some guy go into an FBI building and, and try to shoot up people again. All And you hear over and over again with people like this because they believe that their action is going to cause this uprising of everybody, which, you know, it never does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's interesting that people get that that perspective. Yeah. And I think that's sort of how I walked away with it this last time I watched it, because, you know, you, you see the explosions and you think to yourself, this this wouldn't have worked. And if anything, you are kind of the bad guy, because if you're think from Dee's perspective of how it was portrayed in the movie, he's trying to, you know, bring down symbols of oppression. And in doing so, he brings down old, like what are essentially in the movie, old world symbols of freedom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to bring yeah. them down and make them anew. And it doesn't it's like that, even like fire symbolism side of things, it still doesn't work. If you really wanted to bring down the symbol of oppression given the movie and i don't i haven't read the book so maybe it's different there um you you would have gone after the minutemen right that because something with that symbol on the side of the building that you see in the beginning of the show or the movie would have been a much more poignant criticism of that sort of philosophy because it was emblematic of that philosophy much like the ss or the gestapo or the stasi or pick your secret police force right but mm -hmm. instead they go and they take down what would otherwise be symbols of freedom. I don't look at parliament as a fascistic building. I don't look at a courthouse with Lady Liberty or any version of her um, as a symbol of fascism. I, it, and maybe that's kind of the anarchy um, naivety that the author and by extension, the director were sort of trying to get at. Mm -hmm. So let me, you know, what I, the question I was sort of starting with a while back for you guys what would it take, or, you know, if you were to choose a place in the world, I guess, uh, for you to be supportive of these kind of actions? Uh, well, yeah, there'd, uh, there'd have to be a whole lot of corruption, I think. But, uh, uh, then that's not, not hard to find. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, uh, that's kind of like obscenity, you know, I'll know when I see it. <laughs> What do you think, Taylor? I, I, I know you've already mentioned you don't want to bring in super current events, but I sort of have to. Yeah, it's um, hard to avoid. <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> right. And Andy brought on somebody who runs a political podcast. So like, I, I'm really trying to hold my tongue here. There's, if I'm looking at like the United States right now, I am, I do not see this country being anywhere near something where this plot line makes any sense. I don't see a, a reasonable you know, explanation for why we should be blowing up anything in D.C. or courthouses in Portland or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I don't see our government as that far gone. Now, if I were, were in a situation like the Ukrainians where already mass destruction is, um, depending on where I'm at in the country, is being, you know, failed upon me by outside aggressors from the you know, rockets and I have no choice in the matter, then maybe I would go about blowing up some buildings to try and make some change. But that's still not really the same because there's an outside aggressor. Mm -hmm. I could try and put my shoes and, and put my feet in the shoes of a North Korean, but I, I really don't think I can because I have no idea what living in that world looks like. Right, right. As a matter of practice. But like if I were sitting in the concentration camps as a North Korean or maybe even a Russian during the gulags days, I could maybe 
I would probably be much more empathetic towards glowing up some stuff to make a point. That being said, if my point was, and in, in V with V, this is the point in the movie that he says, we came, like there was a time where our nation stood for something and it no longer stands for something. And that inner model, that monologue that he does in the beginning where it's like, it's because you feared the change and you were afraid of the Minutemen or of the new government, you know? So it's like there was a change from freedom to fascism back to freedom. If that were the lens that I was looking at, I don't see myself blowing up the symbols of the freedom by all means, like I was saying mm. earlier, blow up, blow up the new symbols. But maybe in that situation, I would be more sympathetic towards going through committing violence or blowing up buildings in order to make a point. Yeah. But it's not like where we're at now. There's lots of people now. You talked about the FBI stuff. Well, a few things you said there that trigger stuff for me. One is Portland is a really interesting case. So I'm just going to, in this podcast, we're just going to break the rule because there's no way to talk about this movie without talking about uh, current <laughs> okay. events. So Portland, talk about symbolic, right? I don't know if uh, Nancy Rommelman, uh, who often writes for Reason, did an extensive series of articles on Portland, more than anybody else, um, where she really went there and stayed a bunch of time and talked to the people involved in everything. And she was describing, because, you know, they have spent, it's still going on, I think, but they spent months and months in a row, every single night attacking the federal buildings, trying to burn them down. The You know, these couple of teenagers were taking these buckets of feces and throwing them into this room with a security guard in it, who's then going to have to clean this shit out, literally clean this shit out. And she asked them, what do you think this is going to accomplish? And they're like, you know, well, we're standing up for, you know, civil rights and, and black kids are being killed in the streets. And it's like, so throwing a bucket of crap <laughs> that some janitor is just going to have to, what, what is this going to do? <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, and, and, and so I do feel like if, if you are in a situation of, of true, you know, unacceptable uh, political circumstances, uh, it, it seems like your actions should have some connection to actually making a change. Yeah. <laughs> right. One of the big things that occurred to me when I was watching the big climax with Parliament blowing up is that, uh, you know, it, it just seemed a shame that with all the ugly buildings that have been constructed in London since the, you know, later 20th century, that he chooses to blow up Parliament. I know there's the historical resonance of the gunpowder plot and all that, but still it was, uh, you know, your why not, why not, uh, blow up some of the modern skyscrapers that are headquarters for the security agencies and stuff, you know, uh, maybe beautify London at the same time you're starting. Your <laughs> That's an interesting thought with September 11th, right? Because some of their things didn't really make sense. Uh, taking down the world trade center, they thought was important and that wasn't important at all. It didn't change anything, mm -hmm. but if they'd been able to take out the Pentagon and if they had been able to take out the Congress, those would have been effective, mm -hmm. right? They would have had even more impact than they well, did. Yeah, they would have uh, caused some chaos if, if they'd, especially if they'd taken out a lot of people in Congress while it was in session. Yeah. Right. But that goes back to your earlier point where you were talking about taking buildings out with people in them, doing these yes. empty gestures <laughs> with nobody in them doesn't achieve anything at all. Yeah. Right. 
Now, so it comes back to, you know, the most pressing thing for me in, in current events, which is the thing that disturbs me most about January 6th, which is, to be honest, it is a step, in my opinion. It is a step in the direction of what we're talking about in this movie. It is the first true step we've had in our history, in my opinion. Before January 6th, we had a unique thing in this country, which is we're the extremely rare country where transfer of power could be absolutely assumed. No matter how bitter the fight, at the end of the day, the person who lost would step down. And that was a huge achievement. That was, there are other, you know, for most of history, they would have been completely mystified. What do you mean if you lose the election, you step down? <laughs> you know, yeah, of course you gather the military and, you know, and arrest your opponent and, and do all <laughs> that stuff. And we had this truly, truly unique thing that made us special. And January 6th broke that. How do you figure? It broke it in the sense that it, now made it possible going forward in the future to consider spending months and years attempting to overturn a fair election and, if necessary, to do it with violence. That wasn't, I mean, we've had that before, though. You had like uh, Bush versus Gore, you had the Supreme no, Court but cases. Those were legal battles, yes, who, that went through our system and that were adjudicated legally. There was no violence. All right, so what, I mean, there was no violence, violence yeah, go, go ahead, I'm sorry. There was no violence, you know, asked by one of the candidates. The, the, the distinction between what happened on January 6th and any other, I'm going to say post-Civil War, uh, disagreement with, with an election was ultimately handled, yes, under legal or otherwise political, peaceful means. There was no riot right. or protest through D.C., well, obviously, you have a different opinion on this guy. So what, what's your thoughts here? I don't know. I just, uh, I mean, I'm probably not the best informed person in the world on it, but I, uh, I haven't seen a lot of evidence. I mean, it didn't seem like a big violent thing to me. I mean, I know one of the protesters got shot crawling through a window. That probably was not yeah, a good Yeah, I would recommend watching some of the videos from the January 6th committee. Um, these people overran the Capitol. Well, with, were, with what? I mean, what kind of weapons did they have? Well, that's, I mean, it was still, they were going through the halls saying, you know, hang Mike Pence. They were trying to find them. They, you know, it's not that, and I agree that most people who came there did not have weapons, but it was a violent affair. And it was an, uh, a true, you know, it, it was an invasion of the Capitol and an attempt to stop the process of democracy. And this is where you, you kind of have to do go back and watch some of the committee hearings because they do talk about the, a lot of the weapons that are present. There's there's a lot more factual background that's going on. It's a lot like all the other uh, protests that were going on in the year prior with the BLM riots because most of the protesters, sure, they were perfectly fine and just doing their thing and speaking out, but there was there was a minute few who were causing a whole lot of trouble. And mm -hmm. the January 6th Commission has been pretty good about laying that information out that wasn't previously available to the public. Yeah. So it's one of those things where you sort of have to watch them to get a full picture of January right. 6th. And but there I do also, feel like that sort of gets away from the movie. <laughs> right. Sure, sure. There were also pipe bombs <laughs> that were left that fortunately did not work and some other things. But, but part of what I'm saying is not so much that 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 was what it could have been. It could have been worse. What it did is it broke the idea that we are special 
and there will always be a peaceful transfer of power. That idea is gone. If certain people get elected president and don't win re-election, we can no longer be sure these things won't happen again. And maybe more seriously in the future. That's what bothers me. Yeah, there was a, yeah, could be. I mean, it seems like there's, there was a lot of talk you know, people who tried to attempt to discuss the election, you know, and make a case one way or another that you had Twitter and Facebook and people like that. If you tried to present, even if you just tried to make like an objectively factual presentation of something, even if it wasn't uh, significant data, I mean, you'd get labeled misinformation or disinformation, but only to one side of the argument, which I mean, uh, if, 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 if you're not being permitted to argue in public forums, well, then, you know, uh, you know I, I think people are going to get upset about that. So I would separate out here two things. One is the social media platforms. And I, I totally agree. I, I completely disagree with the social media platforms deciding what is truth and labeling things misinformation. They have been wrong over and over and over again. They've had to recant after the fact when they've been wrong over and over again. But I would separate that because just like with Bush v. Gore, there was a complete legal process here. There were dozens and dozens of lawsuits brought that went through the system. Many of the judges were Trump-appointed judges, and they found it all to be meaningless. They found it all to be without substantiation. So the legal process was engaged fully. Mm -hmm. And that was where the true argument occurs. The true argument doesn't occur on Twitter, even though... You know, I disagree with how those platforms handle that stuff. Yeah, well, the true argument occurs in the legal system as long as the legal system is operating properly. I mean, I mean, what if the legal system isn't operating properly? Then where does that information ever come out? It doesn't. I mean, right. <laughs> I would, so I would, you know, I'd be interested in any of those cases where it didn't work properly. Again, with Trump judges saying that there was nothing there, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm not aware and I've, I've followed this pretty closely. I'm just not aware of any case where there was substantive things. Now in every election, there's certain things that go wrong. There's certain duplicated votes or extra people voting. It happens all the time, but nowhere near the level that it would require to actually change the result. Again, we should, you know, we can find a way to get back to the movie here, but, oh, yeah. but, I, but I just, that's where I think, and, and even the debate we're having here, these are the closest things I think where we, where we at least start, take one step in the direction of what's being dealt with mm -hmm. uh, in the movie on either side of, of, in my case, feeling that we're potentially breaking down the protections we've had from people stealing elections and stuff. And on the other side, people feeling that the election has been stolen and then taking actions into their own hands. Mm -hmm. That I would agree with. I, I agree with most of what you said, but like specifically, every time I've watched this movie in the past, like when I watched it in high school, watched it again in college, and I watched it early on in my law school career, which would be prior to January 6th, I never really felt this could happen at home. Like when I looked at the fascistic elements of the story, I didn't see that at home. I could see the criticisms that were being made with modern society, but it didn't feel like we were actually going down that path. And conversely, it didn't feel like we were actually going down a path with with mass um, coups and plots to blow up buildings from an American point of view. Mm -hmm. Where when I watched it this month, 
after everything going on. I did feel more. My concerns for where this country is going, it did feel, I was, it, was, it was amplified because suddenly I looked at, is it Piers Morgan they're trying to go after? Kind of, sort of. Hmm. Um, with the dude who's heading the information spin for the government. Oh, yeah. He, the he certainly looks like Piers Morgan. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, okay. So, it, I, like, fact, when, when I they at, first showed him, I thought maybe it was one of those cases of, you know, a real person coming into a movie to play a role. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, it certainly felt like it, doesn't it? But, like, when they're with that figure in particular, like, I saw him, heard what he was saying, and thought, you know, before when I watched this, this whole monologue seemed absurdly silly to me. Because they were there were too many disjointed figures that couldn't have worked here, and now I'm like, oh, I could see somebody saying this now and being dead serious on a on a major network. And conversely, I could see somebody who sort of thinks that V takes the right approach and actually goes to try and blow up a major symbol now in America that I couldn't see before. I don't think either one of them is right by any stretch of the imagination, but I do feel that sense of urgency post January 6th than I did pre after watching this movie. I agree with you there. Since, you know, we, we probably won't solve the world's problems, <laughs> let's move on to more prosaic stuff. You know, we, uh, the, we usually try to talk about the actors and, and the story and stuff. So the you've already talked about Hugo Weaving's role, which, uh, I mean, what, well, you heard what I had to say. What did you guys think about that and, and playing a role inside a mask, which most actors refuse to do? I mean, there are many actors who turn down roles where you're in a mask all the time, or even in The Mandalorian, where he's in a mask all the time. They had, because the actor um, for that role, w you know, wanted his face shown, they wrote a special episode in which he takes off his mask during the story, mm. you know, just to make the actor happy. Uh -huh. uh, so anyway, I'm <laughs> curious, what, what did you guys think about how he pulled this off? Oh, I I thought he did very well. I uh, I mean, he has a really good voice. That certainly helps. Yeah, it's amazing. I thought, yeah. But yeah, just the combination of uh, intonation and you know, gestures and so on. It really, uh, really more than adequately compensated for the lack of facial expressions and so forth. Yeah, I agree with that. Especially use of hand gestures. I go I go back to that monologue at the very beginning where he's using as many words so with the as he can, yeah. <laughs> and you know as as he tips his head, as he you know uses his hands, uses his blades, and sort of makes it a point that even the gestures that he making that he's making make sense with the words that he's saying, if you can keep up with them. Mm. I thought the actor did a really good job of not being able to use their face, and if anything, it sort of added to the mystique and and adds to the idea that at the end of the day, V wasn't a figure; V was actually everybody else mm. who stood up against the government. Did you notice, I didn't notice before this time that I watched it, that at the end when they have the whole crowd and they finally take off their V-mask, that the people th through the movie that are now dead are in there. Huh, I did Like not. the little girl who got shot, she's there. Huh. And the woman that the, that story of her, you know, being in love with another woman and getting put in jail and everything, she's there. Oh. So I thought that was just sort of interesting. Yeah, I didn't spot any you know, of them. I didn't catch that. Yeah. So how about Natalie Portman? Now, I have this interesting thing with her because I still believe that the best role I've ever seen her in is the very first movie she was in, which was Leon, the professional, where she was like 10 or 12 or something, and she did an amazing job. And even though she's done some good roles since, I still think she's never done better than in that first movie. But uh, but this is probably number two to me. Yeah, I uh... I, I enjoyed her. I know uh, you, you thought you detected a 
in inauthentic British accent, and uh, you're probably right about that. It just whooshed right over my head. <laughs> so it was fine. <laughs> I, I wasn't uh, yeah. I wasn't bowled over by her performance, but uh, I it was it worked for me. I sort of agree. There's nothing that really stood out to me that sort of ruined the character that she was playing. I, you know, I, I don't think she did a bad job of portraying the character. I do think the character is semi weak, uh, a little stereotypical, and especially like that beginning scene. Some of the acting there was a little odd, but I don't know if that was just because all the characters were a little awkward and they were trying to rush this like really serious thing happening and making it funny and silly mm. with the like Minutemen stopping her and stuff like that and they're introducing V and it just like that was the only part that really made me go this doesn't work whatever they're trying to accomplish here doesn't really work acting wise but I thought that was all of the characters not just her right right no I, I agree with it being kind of a weak character although it certainly gets much more interesting after she goes through her whole torture process yes Although, you know, I was really having to set aside <laughs> my thing about like, wait, where did he get all these rooms? And, you know, I mean, when did he have time to set all this up? <laughs> and, you know, it just, uh, but that aside, uh, she certainly gets more interesting after she gets more intense from there. But it would have been, I, I would, what I would argue there, talking about her being weak, is that even after that, she this is she is a major character in the movie she gets first billing and i would say it's one of those cases where if you pulled her out of the movie nothing would change hmm. i mean what did she do like if you replaced the character or replaced if, the if you took the character out what would change what did she do in this movie that changed the outcome you know they tried to make hmm. it oh well she decides whether to pull the lever at the end or not okay but right the, the only thing that really does change is that conflict at the very end and even it, it doesn't actually change anything i see your point that makes sense yeah, yeah. so in the assault yeah. in the tv studio she did uh pull these bacon out of the fire you know right right but in terms of the bigger things i would just i would say if i were writing this i would try to give her something that really is different because she was there. And I mean, admittedly, that's true, but that's a pretty small thing, right? I mean, again, if you pulled that scene, it wouldn't change anything about the movie. And there's no indication that he was actually all that screwed. He just recognized that he didn't have to do anything. Right, mm -hmm. right. So I, I think that's a weakness in the writing of what's, you know, overall a pretty well-written thing. Mm -hmm. Stephen Fry, he's mm. always fun to yeah. watch. He was, by the way, recently very good in The Dropout, where he played the chemist who killed himself, most likely based on what was happening at Theranos, and he did a really good job in that. He said that he wanted to play this role because he'd never been beaten up before, and he wanted to, he wanted to be beaten to death on camera. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a funny role. Seemed like a would have been a good guy to work for, probably. But... Uh, Boy, once he started uh, showing that uh, special episode that they had made, and uh, he was so blithe about it, like, ah, you know, I'll have to make a public apology. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, buddy. <laughs> it, it, this is, And this actually was a bit of a disconnect to me, and maybe it's just because of the angle we're seeing and because we're seeing the inside stuff. I don't understand why someone like him would think that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't. And and maybe it's just the case of, oh, you've always been successful. You've always gotten away with whatever. So you just feel like, 
you're going to be able to continue on. Mm. But based on what we know about this society and this government, you know, it's hard to imagine someone would think they were going to get away with that. Yeah, you'd think a guy who had risen to a fairly prominent position in a television network would have a uh, deeper perception of the powers that be. <laughs> it sort of felt like a situation where they're trying to force him into changing sides. And that was the only way they could think of him doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mean that Stephen Fry, the government wouldn't wanted to persuade him? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not. I I don't quite follow. Well, I guess I'm thinking more of like from the character's point of view. I, I the scene doesn't make any sense, and this is where I kind of go back to the movie. It does get a little silly, and it sort of felt like I felt like that whole bit was forced to sort of make it clear that. He was more aware of the government's faults because, oh, I thought I would just get away with this. And turns out, no, I'm actually going to pay for this more greatly than I thought to sort of illustrate and make it Mm. absolutely clear that the government is the bad guys here. Oh, right. Um, So he was his whole beating and uh, execution and all that was to put a spotlight on the government's badness to to sort of bring it up. And maybe that's necessary because like to, to, to go back to V for a moment, it, it, it becomes much less clear that V is the good guy after the whole torture stuff. Mm, right. So maybe they, maybe that part of the movie was used to more co- sort of re- you know, make it absolutely clear that the government is actually the bad guys in the story and V is more of a good guy, even if not perfect. Because when I was watching it this last time, after going to the torture stuff, I really was completely baffled as to if I thought that V was actually the good guy. You know what I mean? Mm. Because yeah. he went through all of that manipulation to achieve a goal that the manipulation that is just as bad, if not worse, at least for this individual person, as what the government was doing through the broadcast company. Yeah, and V, you know, he, he killed Sutler and Creedy and uh, a bunch of other government people. So, I mean, I think that should have been the his plot right there. You know, forget about blowing up buildings, just... Kill a bunch of the bad guys. <laughs> Seems like yeah, not, not quite as cinematic though. Yeah. <laughs> then we have Stephen Ray, who played the you know the one good detective, the one good guy, hmm, and yeah. in a way he in, in to, to contrast him with Natalie Portman, he does make a difference, or at least they certainly build it up that way. And that as V says, you know, he couldn't do all this until the one good guy showed up. Mm-hmm. Right, who who would follow the leads and see what was going on? Yeah, yeah, he he was a pretty interesting character, and he started off, you know, when you first see him, he seems, at least to me, he seemed kind of bland, you know, just kind of like a government functionary schlub type. But then, throughout the movie, as he finds out more stuff, he starts to he starts to realize, oh, I, well, you know, it's like the old skip the uh, are we the baddies. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he realizes that he's been one of the baddies or he's working for the baddies. And, uh, well, and I, I think actually, and this touches on our, our earlier discussion, which is he's the one faced with what do you do if you find out the government really is that bad? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's certainly interesting. And I like Stephen Ray. I know I've seen him in some stuff, but, oh, he was, uh, in particular, he won or almost won a major acting award for The Crying Game, which I haven't seen hmm. since it came out, but uh, it was a, a pretty interesting movie. 
I've, I've never, never seen it, but I have heard about the twist ending. <laughs> I know. Well, I was very lucky. I don't, Taylor, I don't know if you know this movie because you're, you're a young guy, but uh, it's a movie where, where the main character turns out to be trans or, you know, okay. in it. And you don't know this until he takes, literally takes off his pants <laughs> and, uh, hmm. uh, and the person who's, you know, uh, would thought he was uh, going to bed with something different. Uh, and it, it was a big shock to everybody. Uh, and I was extremely fortunate, but if you know it already, it, it re removes, you know, some of the um, uh, interest in the movie. And I was very fortunate to have gone and seen the movie before hearing about any of this. <laughs> I got the full, the full effect. I also feel to me a, a little bit of a weakness in the directing is is that um, there was stuff that where they followed the comic too closely, in my opinion. Mm. An example of that is the dressing scene in the beginning where both V and Evie are in front of mirrors dressing and we keep cutting back and forth to them and they're doing the same actions, you know, putting on their shoes and boots at the same time, that mm. sort of thing. That's right out of the comic. And the thing is, in a comic book, when you have alternating frames that are showing you these contrasting images, that can be very compelling. But, you know, I always feel like if you direct your movie from a comic book, you're making a mistake, right? Mm. Because it just, it just weakens the cinematic possibilities. A movie is a movie and you should choose your shots differently is, is my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say this to somebody who's not a movie buff and didn't read the comics. I didn't have any issue with that scene at all. It, to me, it sort of actually got the point it wanted to get across perfectly because it's introducing both characters. This is clearly mm -hmm. happening at the same time. And well, since this is going back and forth, you know they're about to meet anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And I think probably for me, the thing is because I had read the comic, now I'm flashing back to... Mm -hmm these frames in the comic right so yeah so I, I can't evaluate it without having read the comic oh sure uh, yeah <laughs> yeah as somebody who hasn't read the comic it didn't it didn't stand out to me seeing the movie i thought it worked fine but uh also on the subject of uh, uh other miscellaneous topics um i i think the movie is just really good looking you know the production design and so forth uh there it's a just a very visually appealing movie for, you know, in most, most all the scenes very well down there, I think. And it was the director's first movie. I didn't look up what else he'd directed. James McTeague. He was an assistant director on Dark City. That's a movie I love and hope we watch sometime. He worked on the Matrix trilogy and Star Wars Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yeah, he's done stuff like that. Okay. Um, but a lot of times as an assistant director. So, uh, another thought I had had about this movie that I uh, I don't think I've mentioned uh, yet is um, it reminds me at least the plot and the moral complications or questions that it raises um, reminds me a little bit of Fight Club, which would probably be a good Rage Against the Machine movie. Yeah, it's our, it's on the list, or actually, I added it when we talked to Morris Vigel. Uh, oh, so, okay. Yeah, we'll come back to that. We we will see it. I've never seen it. I'm the only person on the planet who hasn't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't say too much Fight more Club? about it then. Yeah. I have not seen Fight Club either. Ah. That makes you feel any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's one of those, there's just so many references in society that at some point you got to give in and you know, see what it's about. <laughs> but sort of like Crying Game, I, I already know, you know, the secret of the movie or at least a little bit of it. But, so. yeah. 
I, I really like that right. movie, so that'll be a fun one. I haven't seen it in years either, so that'll be I'll be ready to see it again by the time that rolls around. Okay. Any closing statements about this movie? So for me, like, I, admittedly, I wasn't too um, ready to talk about some of the more nuance, like of the actual actors and the directing and stuff like that. But when I was watching the movie this this last time, and I've alluded to it a couple of times, I really felt, I really felt like I was watching a different movie, thinking about it from the lens of the moral questions that V is posing now are making more sense than they were when I watched this previous. In other words, like, you know, after the whole torture stuff and you get the background on how he handled Natalie Portman's character, Evie, my my question was why? Like, what does this actually serve? Why was there this question of her integrity? Why was there this question of uh, her dedication to any sort of cause? And if he was willing to go through this length, should he really be doing this at all? I would hope that if you've watched the movie in the past and you only looked at it through the lens of good and bad, black and white, it's a movie, it's a good time to sort of watch it again thinking, you know, with the moral implications of what V's character is doing, what purpose did he actually serve? You can point to the end with everybody taking their masks off and a happy liver after moment, but it almost feels forced because I don't, see where he was i don't see how what he was doing would make a ton of sense and where you can sort of see the flaws of both of the extremes and maybe this is an example of where extremism begets extremism and maybe that makes more uh, Mm -hmm. sense in context with the comics i haven't read them but that's really what i walked away with this felt like a movie that was showing you that if you go too far one direction it is very possible you're going to go too far the other direction like that pendulum effect we always hear about it in in online discourse Mm -hmm. politics Mm -hmm. You have this situation where the obviously fascistic government is forcing down on its people. And in response, instead of doing anything rational, we're going to then have this character who's going to come up and cause all sorts of chaos that is equally as bad. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like V was actually the good guy at the end of the day. The people were, sure, but I I no longer have that admiration for the guy Fox mask that I had before. And maybe that's the point they were trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a fair uh, a fair reaction. I think I uh, I certainly right. I I prefer V to Sutler overall. I guess, but there's a a lot of uh, criticism I could offer about uh, his plot. You know, with the talents he has, I think he probably could have come up with a more constructive plot. But <laughs> right. He's he's called he's trying to fit this image of a freedom fighter, and in order to be the freedom fighter, you have to basically strip away the freedoms of an entire person, break them down to their very core um, and bring them back in the image of himself, which the whole problem with fascistic society is that you don't have individuality. So he had to almost take away someone else's individuality to really bring it back. But did he? I don't know. Right, right. I think it's really interesting to talk about the mask that It is because of V for Vendetta that that mask uh, became a symbol and is popular. And to have a piece of art that does become part of the real world is interesting, right? Oh, yeah. Also, I guess related, and it's kind of my closing statement, I think, you know, as we say, this film seems to be more and more relevant. And I think the fact that it is a film where it inspires a discussion like we've had where you're really having to think about things and you're really having to think through things and how it applies to things that are going on. I don't like message movies. 
mm. too much, even though we've been watching them for this, you know, network <laughs> and Face in the Crowd are both message movies, even though they're very enjoyable. Mm. But I, I prefer messages to be a little more buried. But, you know, I think this one, um, this one is really interesting for, for being able to inspire this kind of thinking in conversation. So it's a movie. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I will say we, we usually end with asking, is it worth watching for a modern audience? And I think for that reason to me, all the other things aside, for that reason to me, it is, it is very much worth watching. So where, where would you guys put it on the worth watching meter? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I'd say I uh, think it's worth watching. I wouldn't say it's one of my all-time favorites, but uh, I, it was worth watching. And then, uh, you know, the first time I saw it, I'd, I was glad I'd seen it. And then uh, when I rewatched it for this podcast, I enjoyed it again. You know, I probably don't need to see it again for a while, but uh, I liked it. Yeah, I think it's a movie where if you don't want to get into the societal nuances of it, it's still a fun movie to watch. V as a character isn't like an obviously good or obviously bad figure, which means it's not terribly cliche and it's mm -hmm. enjoyable from that perspective if you just want to kill two hours. I also think if you are somebody who really wants to ponder some some of the more deeper political points being made in it, and I and it's something that I wouldn't have said before because it really didn't seem this deep in my when I watched it before with modern events as they're going on, especially worth watching. If you want to take apart the whole fascism versus anarchism arguments or even boil it down to whatever you want to call neocons in a much more um, libertarian-esque criticism or comparison, that is worth watching if you want to look at it from that lens. Because I don't know of many movies that can actually get that deep without breaking the sort of somewhat silly element that the B character provides. Mm -hmm. I think for multiple groups of people, whether you're super serious into this stuff or you just want a good two hours, it's definitely worth watching. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good place to end it. So thank you very much for joining us, Taylor. Yeah, thank you. And where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> so if you want to engage with me personally one-on-one -on -one and watch me cause up a stir, Twitter is the best place to find me at Taylor Eland. I do have a couple of shows and a couple of projects that I host at Contrarix.com. It's C-O-N. T-R-A-R-I-X.com. And that's where you can find more of my intellectual stuff. But if you want to mess around, Twitter's best place. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I can't remember what we're going to be doing next. So check <laughs> us next week to find out. <laughs> <laughs>